Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. We're all cowards. There's no such thing as courage. There's only fear. The fear of getting hurt and the fear of dying. That's why human beings live so long. The great impost has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I know you hate to talk about politics, but we need to discuss the removal of the head of a renowned university for political reasons, for reasons that have nothing to do with the mission of higher education. The missionary of higher education. (laughs) So tell me. Are you on board with the firing of Joe Gao, Chancellor of University of Wisconsin, La Crosse? I am taking a firm stance here. I don't, I'm usually so apathetic about politics, but here, I, this has gone too far. The guy, all he did was make a little amateur porn with his wife on the side. And uh, they called it abhorrent and disgusting. I feel like that's just like, that's just hitting below the belt disgusting did they watch it did they watch the the story is that this guy who's in his early 60s i think and his wife had an only fans and he had two only fans i guess one that was for porn like sex and then another where he would have porn stars appear with him and his wife and they would cook vegan dinners Right? Right. See? Principled. Like Nina Hartley, famous old porn star, was on for uh, one of the cooking shows making Kung Pao Cow. <laughs> which <laughs> they So that channel is on YouTube. Yeah. And um, I looked, looked it up. It's not the only thing I looked up, but I looked that up. Um, one of welcome many things to, you looked up. <laughs> one of many things for research. You know, we take, when we... When we research topics for this show, we don't fuck around. So it's, it's the channel is Sexy Healthy Cooking. And like the first video is a little montage with all of the different porn stars that he's invited. And they have, you know, casual conversations about food and getting recognized as porn stars. And you seem like you've watched a lot of this. It's a little creepy. Like, uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm just being judgmental. What's creepy? But the guy, the, the, like, the guy, the chancellor, he gives me a little bit of weird vibes, you know, like when he's like, he's a little too excited to have these porn stars. <laughs> I mean, does that surprise you? Do you expect him to be like totally chill and normal? I don't. Yeah, I think I said he, he's first. Of I, all, I, 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 yeah. The Venn diagram of academics and amateur porn stars doesn't. Uh, and like cooking show creators <laughs> and vegans. 
and, <laughs> and and plus University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. You know, like there, that's just weird right there. You know, if you're going to be the chancellor right. of that university, so like you put all of that in a bowl, and you got yourself, a, you got yourself a stew going. <laughs> oh man! But like seriously, um, the the statement that they released announcing that he was fired was they did call it abhorrent, and I guess you know Midwest is different. But it did strike me as as no. excessively moralized language that seemed like, really? How many of those people who are calling it abhorrent have never, like, have they, are they all willing to cast the first stone? They're, they're porn free in their lives? I mean, obviously that's ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. it's kind of ludicrous and quirky <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's a little bit creepy on the edges, but it sounds like... Uh, they were about as wholesome as you could be doing this stuff, at least from the descriptions of it. Uh, so yeah, I I oppose the uh, the fire <laughs> or or at least the use of those that language. I guess yeah. I would be mad if I thought you know if I was on the board of some university and this person had this secret life doing this. Although apparently they use their names at least for the cooking show, but maybe not the. OnlyFans porn site. I don't know how it worked. Yes. W one of the things that I was reading referred to it as sort of an open secret mm -hmm. or like hidden in plain sight where they, they clearly weren't doing a lot to hide it. Um, and they only started the the YouTube cooking channel a few weeks ago. And maybe that's what uh, alerted people to it. But he had gotten in trouble for inviting a porn star to give a talk at the <laughs> University of Wisconsin, I guess. And so. Yeah, Nina Hartley. $5,000. <laughs> I, I came across that. $5,000 honorarium. Which uh, to talk about. To pay out. And so they didn't give him a raise that year because he did that. But he said he invited her to promote free speech. That is <laughs> what everybody will just resort to. Like free, but I think uh, fire is involved. So, you know, <laughs> they were um, like, fuck this Yoel case. <laughs> we have to defend this. This is the true test. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I, I was trying to tap my, undebauched intuitions you know i think i think by now in my life this is see it seems not that controversial like like you said maybe creepy but i was trying to think from the perspective of i don't know you know students complaining um i could see why somebody would might say like it creeps me out that my well he's but he wasn't teaching right like he was just being a i guess he's going to a faculty job but yeah i don't know would you think automatically that somebody would get fired if it, that they found out that like it, there's no policy he's violating? I, yeah, I, I don't think. know. If it was me, I would say sure. Like yeah. if he's a good chancellor um, and he's doing that job well, then absolutely stay. Maybe if I got a lot of complaints from students or parents, you know, even if they were just kind of whiny bullshit complaints, I might tell them to tone it down or then, you know, make it more secret. But uh, but I also don't think it's like the biggest injustice in the world if he did this without being fully upfront about it to to let him go. I don't think you should moralize it, though. It's more just a business decision. And I wonder, like, how good a chancellor is this guy? You know, you, you sometimes wonder if this was just, oh, thank you, like on a on a platter, we're given this excuse to let a guy go. Is it right. that? Or like way worse would be. 
he's a great chancellor, but we've got like, you know, the right wing student board of some like district uh, making this their pet project and it's not worth it to fight them. And so we just let him go. So I hope it's not that. Right. And I also think there is a, I think you're right. I do question his judgment because you got to know that people are not going to be happy about this. And so either you're just going to commit to it and sort of report it or like he could have easily predicted that this was going to happen. I just don't see it. It seems to me like maybe even there was maybe he's making enough money on OnlyFans that he doesn't need his chancellor job anymore. This was more fun. Death by YouTube porn (laughs) cooking channel. Suicide by cancellation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I saw on his YouTube channel. So this this first video is, again, a montage of, I guess, future episodes. And they're talking to porn stars, including a couple, asking them who gets recognized more. And so they're talking about getting recognized and like the awkwardness of it. And Joe Gao's wife is like, you know, when we go out, he gets recognized all the time. And I was like, wait, what? Like, is his porn account that famous? Like. No, she's like, just as a chancellor, everybody says, are you Joe Gao? Aren't you Joe Gao? And I'm like, come on. <laughs> really? Like the chancellor is walking around that's, Wisconsin getting that's, recognized. Yeah, that's a real indictment of lacrosse, <laughs> Wisconsin, right there. Are you Joe Gao? <laughs> you should not be recognized if you're a chancellor. Like, I feel like that's almost part of the job. And maybe that's, you know, the final issue with this. You know what he should have had? He should have just done a podcast on porn because no one would ever do anything. That's that's how we've remained. I feel like we have many more fireable offenses on our no, podcast. Totally. No, somehow the podcast, unless you're Bean Dad, and it, no, it wasn't even on the podcast that he did it. No, like, it wasn't. Yeah. yeah, it was on Twitter. Yeah, it's very rare. Like, for some reason, this gives you a little bit of, uh, like, a shield, some kind of, like, unbreakable shield. Uh, like, a lot of people think, how do you guys do it? It's like, that, that's, <laughs> it's very simple. It's a podcast. Nobody's going to, like, listen to a podcast to try to figure out, like, when we're offending or when we're making dirty jokes or whatever. Unless you're Yoel. Unless you're Yoel. <laughs> Unless you're Yoel in bar. Maybe get back on that fire and stop, uh, you know, focusing, you know, all your attention. Yeah. yeah, don't divide your attention. All right. So that's the only case of the head of an institution of higher learning being forced out for political reasons. Uh, it's the only story, right? It's really like, <laughs> I can't think of any other story where that's the case. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about William James's chapter on attention from the principles of psychology.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who support us, who interact with us. And for the first time, I think ever, at least for me, I'm going to lead with support us in more tangible ways because I have some announcements to make about Patreon. So if you join us at the $1 and up per episode, so $2 a month, you get ad-free episodes plus seven volumes of Dave's excellent beats. If you join us at $2 per episode, so $4 a month, that gets you into our bonus tier episodes, and we have a whole archive, like over 100 bonus episodes. And here's the announcement, so I can give you a little bit of a schedule for the upcoming weeks. Next week, the off week, we will finally be releasing the third Overton Windows, where I talk with Bob Wright about how the Overton Window, the acceptable range of normal mainstream discourse shifts over time and the topic for the third Overton Windows is the trans debate. So hopefully we don't get into too much trouble. I think it was a pretty good discussion. Recorded a long time ago. uh, Finally getting around to editing it now. The next week will be a main episode and then the following week after that will be the first ambulators of the new season. Season 3, episode 1. And if you're new to Patreon, the ambulators is where we do a deep dive episode by episode breakdown of the greatest TV show of all time, Deadwood. That's very exciting. We're going to get that going again this new year. At $5 and up, you also get access to our five-part Brothers Karamazov series, deep dive, five-episode series into that remarkable book. And you get to vote on a listener-selected episode. And we have a new one coming up. I'm going to post the call for episode topics uh, within the next couple of weeks. And then at the $5 tier, you can vote on five or six finalists and decide which one of those we are going to talk about. $10 and up per episode, you get to ask us a question every month, every month if you choose, and we will answer those questions in a monthly video episode for you and an audio version of that episode for everyone at the bonus tier. So thanks to all of you who support us in these tangible ways. It really keeps us going, and and very soon we're going to have a couple other announcements about Patreon, so stay tuned for that. If you would like to support us in slightly less tangible, but still a tangible way, give us a uh, nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. We love to read them. And it helps other people find this podcast who may not know about it yet. And uh, subscribe to us on Spotify. Who knows? Maybe that helps as well. If you just like to reach out to us, email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We still read all the emails, even if we can only respond to a small fraction of those. And you can follow us on Instagram. Tweet at us at peas at Tamler at Very Bad Wizards, and you can like us on Facebook, and maybe if you so choose, follow me on Letterboxd. I've been posting some new reviews of the movies that I see. I see a lot of movies, so uh, if you're a Letterboxd person, give me a follow, and I appreciate that. Thanks to everybody who gets in touch with us in all the different ways that you do, and now let's get back to the episode. All right, now let's get to talking about William James's uh, chapter on attention from the principles of psychology from 1890. So we've done habit, we've done instinct, and now we're doing attention. And I honestly think that the attention chapter, I hadn't remembered, but I think the attention chapter is one of the most important for the the whole two-volume series. I think that James 
places a great deal of importance on what attention is and the role that it plays, both in his psychology and it turns out maybe in his metaphysics as well, Mm -hmm. because of its connection to the will. I think he views attention, the, the sort of deployment of our senses, perception, as, um, as sort of like a critical source of shaping behavior and uh, just shaping psychology in general. And I, I do want to get to talking about its relationship to the rest of, of James' views. But why don't we just dive into the chapter and, I don't know, what did you think? Yeah, it's been fun kind of digging into not just the chapter itself, but then a lot of the stuff about the chapter that I've seen. One of my um, colleagues here, Cameron Buckner, I just learned today looking at some secondary research, uh, and he does a lot of stuff on deep learning and AI stuff. And apparently this chapter still uh, has a ton of importance when it comes to things like that. As somebody that um, both struggles to focus on work and is also very interested in uh, a kind of non-dual Buddhist practice that tries to relax our tendency to do those things, certain features of attention and especially focused or selective attention. And so it's very interesting to see it broken down with... A lot of precision and, you know, in that same William James way, he's going to quote these like <laughs> 19th century psychologists at great length. And he's going to go into all sorts of great anecdotes, but yet present something that is still relevant today and that, you know, psychologists today still will uh, die on the hill for it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. At least he put him in quotes. Um, <laughs> what are you referring to there? Nothing. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> Just saying. I, it's good to put things in quotes if you're going to quote them. Make it clear that you're quoting uh, somebody else. Uh, yeah. I was actually even more pleased with it. I was a little worried it was going to get too nitty gritty. But no, he's always keeping his eye on the bigger picture, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, attention is, of course, you know, a central topic in in psychology still. And I did want to say a little bit about, you know, I'm far from an expert on this stuff at all, but it's always part of an intro psych course to talk about, about research on attention. And so when I talk about attention to my class, I talk about sensation, perception, attention, and memory sort of all in, in one kind of unit as sort of the building blocks of cognition, because Really, nothing gets off the ground without attention. And reading this, I was like, dude, like a lot of the things that James says here, I just thought were insights that came way later. Like it's a lot of what he says. I'm like, oh, he was already saying this. And I feel like, yeah, probably we have a ton more research and, and a lot of empirical support for some of the claims, but... This is what Paul was saying about the habit uh, episode when he listened to it and then went back and read William James on habit is that, holy shit, like this stuff, which I thought was at the vanguard of, you know, the latest research, he was just already doing back in 1890 or whenever this was first written because he takes a lot of these essays from, or a lot of these chapters from earlier essays. It's pretty remarkable. He's not underrated in one sense but in another sense (laughs) he is he's like the prophet of psychology and a lot of philosophy too so yeah 
And I, I, I do think he's kind of underrated. I mean, everybody uses him for like pull quotes to start their papers, right. but I wonder how many people actually read like the whole thing. William James defines attention. Or, <laughs> exactly. As, uh, should we read that, uh, that quote? Yeah. So he says, yeah. uh, everyone knows what attention is. I love that. Uh, <laughs> it, it's the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Focalization, concentration of consciousness are of its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused dazed scatterbrained state which in french is called distraction or distraction <laughs> Uh, and wait I, was distraction not an english word at the time? Like, <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> that's a good question and you do the german one because you, you oh that, my god you man. have a natural facility with that right <laughs> in german <laughs> i'm sure that's right and that confused scatterbrained state is I think what we all sometimes fear we're slipping into at every point. And it's this idea which he talks about a little earlier before he defines it of the world, if it weren't for this, would just be a blooming, buzzing confusion, he says, right? Yeah. Without selective interest, he says, experience is an utter chaos. Um, yeah. what, do, what do you think about that? Like, I guess it's true in one sense, right? It's interesting. He has, and you know, you mentioned Buddhism, and I was one of the things I want to talk to you about is what, as you said, what the goal um, of some of those meditative practices is when it comes to attention. Because he really looks down on the inability to focus yeah. on uh, to deploy attention, and he says it is difficult not to suppose something like this scattered condition of mind to be the usual state of brutes when not actively engaged in some pursuit. Yeah, and so. You know, I think that James thinks that everything interesting about being intelligent and, as we'll see later, moral and willful has its root in attention. And so so maybe even just what it is to be human is the ability to, to use your volition to selectively attend. And I guess I'll say this, this here. I don't remember if we've talked about this before, but James had this real specific view of behavior and motivation. So James thought, and I think this m makes it easier to understand why he puts so much focus on attention. He thought that behavior naturally followed from a thought. So if you think walk to James, that's your, your brain is going to tell your body to walk. So it's not that you have to think walk and then do something else. It's that when you think walk, you would normally walk if you weren't inhibiting. So, so there is a direct connection from, from just thinking the thought to behavior and so for James, being able to choose or focus on a particular thought doesn't just shape your mental life. It shapes your entire behavior. Yeah. And so I think that's what I think he thinks separates us from the brutes. From uh, utter chaos. Although I think he would agree that chaos, a dog yeah. will also has the faculty of attention and will can selectively focus on certain things. They'll just be di completely different than what we focus on. But I think where humans might have a step up over dogs, according to James, is uh, in particular the volitional attention. It's the ability yeah. to talk to the guy 
next to you at the fun cocktail party. We'll read that quote later. <laughs> right, wow, all this right. other interesting conversation is happening over there. Maybe the dog will just go to the more interesting smells, whereas the person can try to use some kind of metacognition to get themselves to stay focused on the thing that is not the stimulus that is definitely not right. uh, the most yeah, attractive. Totally. And yeah, it reminds me of the dogs in Up. Or squirrel. squirrel, yeah. <laughs> like, and that's that's what he starts out his chapter, sort of bemoaning the the lack of attention paid to attention in what he refers to as the English empiricist school. He thinks that there has been maybe out of a desire to have everything boil down to experience. He thinks that they have dismissed attention in favor of this passive view that it's just the things that happen to us. Um, that drive our thoughts and our behavior. And he thinks that this is missing something crucial about, about psychology. And also that it just appears to us and we're blank slates. And so like, however yeah. it is, it, it is how it appears. Uh, yeah. Rather than us bringing something to the interaction with uh, sense, sensory and also intellectual stimuli. Stimulus, right? Yeah. Like your stimuli. So, like, uh, I think the problem with the empiricist is also that he thinks we, you know, like, so here's what he says Such an empiricist writer as Mr. Spencer regards the creature as absolutely passive clay upon which experience rains down. The clay will be impressed more deeply, most deeply, where the drops fall thickest, and so the final shape of the mind is molded. Given time enough, all sentient things ought, at this rate, to end by assuming an identical mental constitution. For experience, the soul shaper is a constant fact, and the order of its items must end by being exactly reflected by the passive mirror, which we call the sentient organism. I think the problem he has with empiricists is that empiricists don't think that we... Um, on, and our projections and our categories or our previous, even just previous experience that has allowed us to interact with the phenomena, like that is shaping our experience as much as the things in and of themselves. Whereas the empiricist just thinks we're, we're just like a projection screen that the world beams onto us and then we totally get it and we see all the same things. Yeah, and it's the same flavor came through in behaviorism, you know, sort of the sort of mid-century revival of empiricism, where I think the clear belief is that two organisms with the exact same experiences ought to have the exact same psychology, the exact same behavior. And yeah, James is both saying with his Vatican example, he's both saying there are things that humans attend to that dogs wouldn't. So there is something actively going on in a human mind that's different. And he's saying the other thing you said, right? We're constructing our reality. We're shaping our own minds as we are experiencing because of our ability to deploy selectively our attention. But uh, And I don't think he's going full Kantian in that there's something about being human that makes us categorize things and filter reality in certain fairly well-defined ways. Like, I don't think he's saying that. I think different, even human beings, obviously, like, different 
species, but different human beings based on their previous experience will experience reality differently because they've built up different preconceptions, uh, different ways of interpreting or assimilating all the all the the stimuli into certain categories. So there can be a lot of variation within the species as well, just based on how you've experienced life to that point. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's what I was trying to get at. And later on, when he talks about, you know, he's famous for his discussion of the stream of thought. He does say, you know, something explicit. I believe it's in this chapter where he says, even just holding a thought in your attention for an extra second can like shape the rest of your life. Right. Right. Uh, he really does like experience just isn't enough to to account. It's interesting because I think in the in when when he discusses the will, he's fine actually having a completely mechanistic account of how the stream of thought gets going. You know, he's perfectly fine with the view that it's all sort of a, a deterministic causal chain of things happening to you and you thinking. And like his view on the will, like on the freedom of the will, really boils down to the ability to just hold some thought with your attention, just hold it a little bit longer. That's like the source of everything. Yeah. Um, so the next section he, uh, is this discussion of wund, wund. Again, like wund. you're going to be better yeah. at that at the more <laughs> German, Germanic, Prussian pronunciations but yes Wundt just for the record Wundt was the really the first experimental psychologist like he's the first one who started a lab in psychology and started doing so he's like the granddaddy of of them all and just because I can't say it his student Titchener who studied with him in Germany came to Cornell and basically brought experimental psychology to to the US (laughs) fucking Germans and we have a big sexy painting of Titchener in the middle of our department it's not quite the only fans level sexiness <laughs> uh, so this part you know some of this stuff kind of baffled me do you have like a quick summary of what they found I thought a lot of the interesting experiments is this one who talked about like trying to do two or three or four things at the same time and yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the section really is about a topic that I guess had already been of some debate, which is, yeah, those how many things can we attend to at once? And he gives some kind of hilarious quotes where people are like, definitely six. Yeah. <laughs> and some people are like, <laughs> like definitely four. That's a gen, like Gen Z maybe, <laughs> but like... Uh, yeah. And I didn't think that James really even put much stock into all of this work. I think he it read to me like he needed to it almost read like a reviewer told him, like, you haven't talked about this important work by Wundt and others about how many things we can attend to at once. Because some of the things that he says in this section is it just seems to depend on what you call one thing or or two things. And so when you chunk things together, when you lump them together, they become one thing that you're attending to, like a grouping of three marbles. You can call that one grouping. No, but what about like doing three marbles? What about doing like a multiplication problem and well, yeah. writing poetry at the same time or something like that? That's also what he talks about. So he says the other the issue, the other thing that we seem to see is that different modalities of attention make it really much harder. So whereas you might be able to say reasonably my visual system can keep track of, like they did this one thing where they dr- dropped like three marbles, four marbles and five marbles. And so, like people can seem to keep track of six marbles or something, right. but they can't keep track of six things when it's 
you know, one of them is listening to a speech and the other one is writing one. Yeah. Right? You can't like that all of a sudden becomes impossible. Um, like the, 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 the classic modern example of this that was viral. I don't know. It's probably like 15 years ago. Do you remember the gorilla? So like there's this oh, yeah. thing of counting the basketballs like yeah. that. So these, these students are just throwing the basketball around. They ask you to count it. Uh, how many times the basketball has been passed. And when you do that, and I was one of these people, I counted the right number of times the basketball was passed. And then they, they gave it to me. I was like, yeah, I'm smart. And then they said, <laughs> but did you see the gorilla? And then you go back and then you realize that during all of that, a gorilla comes out, beats its chest, like a, a man and a gorilla, like 2001 style gorilla, beats his <laughs> yeah. chest and like and then leaves and it's easy to see when you're not counting the basketball so yeah. like it's a perfect illustration of i think this point of we can take a lot of this stuff in but once we start to focus our certain like pre-existing categories of perception on something then that will make us uh, leave other things out, even other things that would be otherwise clear and obvious. Um, like yeah. I, I looked at the gorilla thing again this uh, today, um, just because I came across it in preparation for this, and it's like it's so obvious. Uh, like when you <laughs> I know. when you ha when you know it's coming, or when you're not focused too much on the basketball, that it's like I'm amazed that that could have happened. But that that really does tell you something. And this is something I think psychology has done a really good job of showing how many of these kinds of things that we can do. Psychology and yeah. magicians and yeah, and magicians. Yeah. That's right. So that that's uh, called inattentional blindness. That gorilla experiment. And it's so it's funny that you bring it up because I was just today reading a thread by Eric Hole, uh, the guy who who dream. had the dream theory yeah. that we talked about. He has a Substack, very sharp guy, and he was talking about how now with the gorilla experiment, sixty percent of people say they see the gorilla, whereas like in the original ones by yeah. Shabri and, and Simons was like you know single digit percentages or maybe ten percent, and. Uh, he was trying to say that that maybe it's not a thing, but it's just that everybody's also seen that. So like in my intro site class, I don't show it anymore because so many kids have seen it on social media. You think it's that or do you think it's that like people have gotten better at this kind of multimedia multitasking? Like it's a it, it's an interesting question. I, I know that there are demonstrations that of change blindness where you slowly change things that nobody notices. Yeah. Uh, which is slightly different than inattentional blindness, but I think that if you do it the right way, I, but I don't know what the the right answer is. To it wouldn't surprise me, and it would be in keeping with James's view if, like, when you're talking about a screen, this gorilla thing is on a screen, and you're talking about multiple things happening on a screen, that um, a, a certain generation, and maybe even us, you know, just because we've been inundated with screens so much, way more, because this was like 15 years ago than, than back then, that we are better at that specific kind of thing. You know, there's probably other ways to more easily demonstrate change blindness and stuff like that now than there used to be. But in this particular way, screens, multiple things happening on a screen, like we are all Albert Einsteins, or at least Gen Z <laughs> are Albert Einsteins. Right, the digital natives. Yeah. And there's also this thing where like, 
it might just boil down to a, a greater suspicion that you're being tricked by something. Whereas like yeah. 20 years ago, like you were just- Again, I think in keeping with James's theory, because we bring all of this stuff to the table yeah. when, and maybe just knowing that, you know, like all sorts of like visual illusions and all of that uh, become viral. And so if somebody's asking you now to count basketballs, like certain little alarm bells go off, even if you <laughs> totally. don't like, even if you don't think that that's necessarily uh, what's going on. Um, should we talk about the varieties of attention? <clears throat> yeah. So James distinguishes one big distinction is between what he calls involuntary and voluntary attention. One being just simply the one that requires effort. Um, and I mean, this is a distinction we use to this day, right? Some things just pop out at you and some things you have to really pay attention to. Um, there are certain things that will happen in, in the environment which will capture your attention. And that's in a passive sense. We're just prepared for that. Um, and some things that really require direct engagement. And he distinguishes between sensible objects. So objects out in the world that we're sensing and ideas, which I think is another great distinction. I don't know if people use it still, but one is focused on your own mental process and and one is uh, on things out there in the world. So like what would be an example? So like a sensible object is I'm looking at this glass and yeah. an idea would be, well, I could be trying to do a math problem in my head. I could be trying to remember uh, this story or this person in a movie or whatever. Like sometimes when I'm having trouble sleeping, I count to 10 yeah. and I just and I just realize that like, my attention has completely wandered before I even get to the number 10. It's just really bad. So just the effort that I'm putting into focusing intently on my own inner mental state. But yeah, and that would be the difference between the passive, effortless, non-voluntary versus the active. The active and voluntary is you being, is you counting. The effortless, passive is all of a sudden you're thinking about... Uh, the guy yeah, at University of Wisconsin. Like, <laughs> should you start an OnlyFans? Should like another do you one? need to do a cooking show? Yeah, another. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Um, and then he has this derived versus immediate, which was a little trickier. So derived here. So he thinks that there are things that we're interested in, just intrinsically immediate. Things are just interesting in of themselves. So he has this example about, you know, hearing a rapping at your window. Like if, if you're expecting your lover to come tapping at your door, like then then uh, you're just naturally interested. I would in say that. no matter what, you're probably interested in someone rapping <laughs> yeah, on your like, window, your bedroom window, <laughs> whether you're expecting it's, your lover or yeah. not. Yeah. It's like the raven. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and derived, which he thinks is it's this i guess kind of bootstrapping attention so by linking something that you're not naturally interested in with something that you are interested in you can focus your attention on something that doesn't have an intrinsic interest to you so would this just be if you saw a a lamp that you normally would like not even notice but it reminds you of a lamp in the shining or something like that and then you're like oh oh cool you know yeah exactly yeah Yeah, totally yeah yeah yeah. and you know in that section when he's going over all of those Wundt experiments and others experiments on attention one of the sets of studies that he talks about are ones where 
people are instructed to pay attention to something. Like they know what they're supposed to be looking for. They're expecting it. And so in this case, it gets a little technical, but basically people are shown uh, like a moving a moving dial, like a, the hand of a clock spinning around a circle and a sound plays and they have to pay attention to at what point in the movement of the dial the sound actually played. If they're expecting the sound, like if they're eagerly awaiting the sound, they're much faster. And in some cases, they actually say they heard the sound before it got to the right point on the dial. And I think that ends up having a a big influence on the way that James thinks about this stuff, because this is like a top-down source of attention. It's nothing you would be intrinsically interested in doing, obviously. It's just been given to you as a goal, and so you're, you're... dedicating your attentional resources. So is is this another claim as to how much of experience is constructed? Because especially if you hear it before it comes, like, and, and, you know, obviously then yeah. you have constructed it um, because it hasn't appeared yet. Um, yeah, well, like, is that like, I, th- I think there's a lot in here. We'll get to some quotes later, maybe, but there's a lot in here that makes it seem like at the very least, he thinks we are constructing reality without saying that reality isn't there. Yeah. But our experience of reality is in large part our contribution to yeah. the just raw stimuli. Absolutely. I think that's exactly where he's going with all this, yeah. which helps understand why he opens the chapter by being sort of extra salty about people who have have this view of all of our, our experience being so passive. Right. And um, just immediately, yeah. like, and where we're the blank slate, we're nothing. Yeah. And we just right. get uh, the experience and absorb it somehow. Um, one thing I I thought was interesting about the immediate versus the derived section is that he says as children, we're just all, we're more excited by immediate stimuli because we have no background to try to sort it all out, categorize it, figure out what we are, uh, interested in and what we're not, what we should put in this box of not really focusing on and what we should actually focus on. As we grow older, though, we become more derived. So like now objects that we see are ways of stimulating other kinds of interests within us rather than just the thing in, in itself. And he says, the teacher must overcome this in students, yeah. you know, because other like, yeah. and I think what he's talking about is like a Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes kind of thing where like the teacher is trying to <laughs> I teach. you were going to talk about predestination for something. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like where Calvin is like looking outside and the teacher is talking and he's creating these, this whole visual world. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is kind of interesting that it's a trade-off, you know. Obviously, yeah. to work your way through the modern world, you're going to need to figure out ways of sorting reality. But there, again, like this reminds me of that kind of beginner's mind idea where part of certain practices, I think this is probably true of most religions, is to reclaim that chi- like childlike just appreciation of the things in themselves, just not what they tell you about something else or what you're going to do later or what you need to do, but just the marvel of of the things in and of themselves, you know? And it's true yeah. that on the one hand, the teacher must overcome this, but on the other hand, that we should also... I, at the very least, encourage 
students to be excited by immediate stimuli because, you know, and just for their intrinsic interest rather than what they can do for us. It's interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't connected it to what James argues in the varieties chapter that we that we read um, because he does like I it sounded to me like he was being kind of like, oh, yeah, this is just a sign of immaturity. I think not, he is here. Yeah. 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 But later on in life is when he comes back around to, to this. I think. That, that it's, not some, it's not so bad to have a, a bit of blooming and buzzing confusion. <laughs> and maybe it's not like maybe confusion is the wrong way to describe. It's the wrong word, yeah. The wrong way to describe it. Although I think, yeah, um, this, is a, this is an interesting balance. Um, because he also talks about like the, the, the guys who are in, when they get focused, the geniuses, right? Like this is the, the yeah. stuff about geniuses is, is precisely their ability to just focus on one stream at the exclusion of some of the most pressing stimuli, including severe pain and stuff. Right. Totally. And, you know, he says that, so he refers to this, or I guess he borrows this phrase, apperception from Wundt and others to refer to the kind of, of attention that is directed or that is a result of something you already know, like a category or something. And he, he says, you can see it in kids, like when, when adults are just like, everything must sound, he doesn't say this, but everything must sound like Charlie Brown adults to them until they hear their name. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden their attention orients because that is one thing that is one concept that they have acquired at that point. But the rest of that, the rest of it, it's really, you know, he's making a pedagogical point. Like you have to bootstrap the child's attention on some of the immediate stuff. So he says, you know, telling an anecdote for teaching right. um, is a way to do that. Yeah, doubtless. So he says, uh, I remember classes in which instruction being uninteresting and discipline relaxed, a buzzing murmur was always to be heard, which invariably stopped for as long a time as an anecdote lasted. How could the boys, since they seemed to hear nothing, notice when the anecdote began? Doubtless, most of them always heard something of the teacher's talk, but most of it had no connection with their previous knowledge and occupations, and therefore the separate words no sooner entered their consciousness than they fell out of it again. I feel like this is just describing my lectures but on the other hand no sooner did the words awaken old thoughts forming strongly connected s series with which the new impression easily combined then out of the new and old together a total interest resulted which drove the vagrant ideas below the threshold of consciousness and brought for a while settled attention into their place this the section where like what separates geniuses from non-geniuses is that they have really good sustained attention Right. Yeah. Um, and they can follow a thought to its conclusion at the exclusion of all sorts of other things uh, that are trying to vie for their attention. I mean, if you think about life, it's just everything is trying to make a claim on our attention. And, and even us, not geniuses, I think it's fair to say, but even us, w like if when we're at our best in terms of producing something of well, value is when we can block a lot of that stuff out to the greatest extent and carry the 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 train as far as far as we can with as few stops as possible, right? And the geniuses are yeah. people who can just do that for you know, like the in some ways this is like the classic philosopher who will just get who will just like be giving a lecture and just stop talking for fifteen minutes. <laughs> 
to uh, work out something that, uh, you know, something that was triggered by by what they said. And, and they might be socially maladjusted. They typically are socially uh, maladjusted in all sorts of ways. But this is the thing that allows them to create works of genius. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about this section? I mean, I think there is there is something to it. I don't know that it's in that it's sufficient but does seem necessary to have that sustained willful attention i was just talking to somebody about a math professor here who is you know getting up there in age and he said i think just in like informal conversation he said something like you know if i ever have some sort of like stroke or something where i'm like have locked in syndrome i don't want you to pull the plug because i will just do math problems in my head even if i can't interact with the rest of the outside world i want to be alive so i can do math in my head it's like That's an ideal exactly the yeah <laughs> that ability to you know james says that he doesn't think voluntary attention can be sustained for more than a few seconds at a time and so what is required to do that thing that actually seeming to sustain your voluntary attention for long enough to follow thoughts to their conclusions or whatever, to be a genius. <clears throat> he says, what is called sustained voluntary attention is a repetition of successive efforts which bring back the topic to the mind. So he thinks you're, you're in a constant, um, I guess, volitional effort to keep the thoughts on track. But the description of it isn't con like it's almost like they're carried away by it. It's almost like they're fallen into a raging river and they're carried by it you know what i mean that's what's i i don't yeah. understand like maybe the attending continuously and the success of attending is something that is not volitional yeah maybe what yeah maybe he's going for something like what he was saying with habit which is that what you know when when you're starting to learn something it requires a lot of effortful sustained attention and maybe once you get to a point where those things have become of intrinsic interest, you have all the necessary categories, you have all, all the tools you need, then it becomes something that's fairly automatic. But still, but getting there. But, but, yeah. but, but even if that's true, I think he still thinks it's only three seconds at a time. That's what I don't fully get. Yeah. So like, even at that point where it's a habit, we are still repeating it, right? We we still bring back the topic to mind. I guess I wonder what, I, I don't totally get why he says there's no such thing as voluntary attention sustained for more than a few seconds at a time. He doesn't seem to cite any like empirical evidence for that. Like, where does that come from? It's interesting. I think he's trying to connect a couple of things together in this claim. So he points, I don't remember if it's here or later, he points to the fact that that unchanging stimuli stop we stop being able to notice them and so you know like a, a clock ticking in the background after a while you just don't notice it anymore so he thinks that if something is unchanging that you can't possibly attend to it and so so i think that's why he, he kind of seems to be saying that you need to be changing the thought and coming back to it repeatedly because you just wouldn't be able to think about the same exact thought. Um, but let's say I'm trying to do long. a proof in my head. Like the thoughts are changing, right? But I guess then that yeah. would count as moving attention to a yeah. different Back object. To the, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. I see. Yeah. Did you catch the his speaking to me directly about fear of death? 
Yeah. Uh, so he, say, he says, there are always some objects that for the time being will not develop. They simply go out and to keep the mind upon anything related to them requires such incessantly renewed effort that the most resolute will ere long gives out and lets its thoughts follow the more stimulating solicitations after it has withstood them for what length of time it can. Uh, and then he says, it is like memento mori in the heyday of the pride of life. Nature rises at such suggestions and excludes them from the view. How long, O oh healthy reader, can you now continue thinking of your tomb? <laughs> in milder instances, the difficulty is as great, especially when the brain is fagged, which I don't know. His word. <laughs> That's, that <laughs> was David who said. Uh, one snatches at any and every passing pretext, no matter how trivial or external, to escape from the odiousness of the matter in hand. <laughs> to me, that perfectly describes grading. Like grading papers, <laughs> right. you know, like death. I, I will focus oh, on death before, <laughs> well before, like that will be the thing that distracts me from grading. I'll be like, yeah, you know, I guess I'll have to die at some point. That'll, then I won't have to grade. <laughs> Let me think about my funeral. <laughs> Never existing again. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah. Back to the genius thing. Do you think this idea, he says, it's their genius making them attentive, not their attention making geniuses of them. Did you get that distinction? There's a couple things like that in this uh, chapter where it's like, I'm not sure what the distinction is here. Like, what's the genius there? The genius, I guess, is the disposition to produce works that nobody else could produce that require sustained attention but yeah like yeah. what like what's the genius supposed to exactly denote there i don't know when you said that i thought about it and i was like that is very confusing and the only thing i could think of is that this is just some way that he has of saying that there's agency he doesn't say it but he doesn't want us to think that it's just oh some people have this natural faculty of attention and that makes them geniuses but rather it is their will to continue having a thought and come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. That is, it's driven by whatever, their interests and their, their wide variety of categories. So, so he seems to paint the picture of somebody who has um, acquired, say, a whole bunch of concepts and can relate a bunch of things to each other. And so once that person, that genius, has all of that equipment, that those that conceptual machinery, then they're able to link together concepts in a way that can sustain attention. Right. And I'm reading into it there, but but I, I, that, I get the vibe that that's what he's saying. That's right. And he quotes like some case of a person who had severe n neurological pain, like crippling headaches. Yeah. But then when they were giving a lecture, they could... Uh, and, and I guess through their genius of like trying to um, develop the argument or thought that they're having, the pain goes away and then it comes back. And that's a result of their the previous just uh, ability and experience with these ideas and their facility with those ideas and being able to get to a point where later in life when they're when they have this um condition they can give themselves a little break because their genius allows them to keep this kind of uh sustained attention for a right. 45 50 minute lecture right he says in the genius these form a concatenated series suggesting each other mutually by some rational law therefore we call the attention sustained in the topic of meditation for hours 
quote unquote the same. In The Common Man, the series is for the most part incoherent. The objects have no rational bond and we call the attention wandering and unfixed. That's clearly something that people can do. You know, the Vietnamese monk who lit himself on fire in protest of the Vietnam oh War. Sat still. Sat still, using concentration and, and attention is the result of a whole life of practice and training. And I think that's just what he's saying, but about in, in intellectual attention, as, as he calls it. Which is giving, a, I feel, a little too much credit to these uh, so-called geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's um, William James. He's going to favor certain <laughs> things over certain other things. Right. Uh, I, I love the the quote um, about the cocktail party. Maybe we can <laughs> talk about it here because, oh, yeah. uh, like he says, all forms of attentive effort would be exercised at once by one who might, whom we might suppose at a dinner party resolutely to listen to a neighbor giving him insipid and unwelcome advice in a low voice, whilst all around the guests were loudly laughing and talking about exciting and interesting things. So, that <laughs> just the idea of being in this, like you're trapped at this dinner. And everybody else is having this great time and joking around and it's all fun and like, you know, inappropriate, but in a jovial way. And this person is just and you have to stay focused. You have to stay interested in this person. That's the most effortful form of attention right. that we can aspire. And we non-geniuses, I guess, can aspire to. <laughs> yeah, like I felt that. When he described it. And I love how it's like, okay, he's like an annoying neighbor and he's speaking quietly. So you're having to extra pay yeah. attention. <laughs> um, no, yeah. I mean, it's really, it does seem as if when he talks about habit and the will, like he really does seem kind of like a virtue theorist. Like he, he thinks that like exercising your ability to sustain attention is just a good thing, right? That like making this part of your of your mental faculties and practicing that and teaching kids to do that. Like these are all things that will make you better. Do you think that like, I didn't totally pick that up from this. I think he thinks we all do it to one extent or another with various different things. There's no escaping doing that to some degree, but I guess you're right. The genius discussion makes it seem like there is a better and worse way of doing it. Although I think he thinks we're all doing it and you could do it for some pretty na nasty ways too. Yeah, I guess I didn't see that as much here. Yeah, I, I took it from his discussion of genius and his discussion of like how we ought to train kids to do it because like without this, the children and the youth wouldn't, I think he thinks that they won't flourish as, as humans if they don't learn to. And then that comment about the brute who thinking without any of this attentional deployment is more animalistic. Um, but I, but like even the children to do it, like they have to learn, right? Like you have to actually learn things. You can't just be like squirrel when it comes to, to learning. But yeah, yeah, I guess. I, I see what you're saying. Um, should we talk about this quote? The Because this is where in our like pre-discussion, you're talking about the mechanisms of attention and you say a narrowing of consciousness and is limited in scope. You say this is prescient, giving people tending to view attention as constrained by limits nowadays. Like, yeah, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So the view of attention as, as being a limited resource and as being yeah. constrained 
it's it's like you know there's still debates about how to properly characterize it but but i think that in general the view that there's a bottleneck there is a widely accepted view and to hear him talk about the the constraints of attention and and the limits of attention and therefore its importance and like letting certain information get in or keeping a thought in mind it just sounds like it's modern psychology you know it's that the view of the bottleneck that he talks about um yeah, it's just what, what do you mean like by the bottom now? <clears throat> so the world of sensation and perception, all of the things that are coming in to your brain and your body, whatever um, of all of those things, you can only attend to some small portion of them. And if you don't attend to them, you never get past like you, you're never able to use them. And we just can't attend to a lot of things. And that's exactly what the inattentional blindness thing is showing, right? That there is, I think that some people have this view that everything that's taken in by the senses somehow is going to be in your mind. And so, you know, you go to hypnosis and you can remember things that you didn't. But if you never attended to it, it's never going to get in. It's never going to get in there. And it turns out that there's just not a whole lot we can focus on at any given time. So a classic example of this is a dichotic listening task where you put, headphones on somebody and you have two streams of audio piping in one to the left ear and one to the right ear. And it's just so vivid, uh, an experience where if you tell somebody, okay, now pay attention to the left stream, like they'll listen, they can totally hear like nice it. And they, yeah. they, yeah. And they know nothing about what's coming in the other right. ear and then they can voluntarily flip back and forth. What they can't do is hear both of the things at the same time. And the, same with binocular rivalry, the studies that he talks about here that are it's still a method used nowadays um, where you present two different images, one to each eye. We don't combine those images in consciousness. We only see one or the other and we can flip back and forth. We just can't combine them. And so, so the constraint of attention, I think, turns out to be a very important feature of, of it. And it's one that I just was surprised that he was so clearly talking about it this this early on. I mean, the other thing that surprised me is that he's citing a bunch of other people who were talking about this in the 18, right. whatever. Yeah. You know? It was a thriving psychology. They, they're not like <laughs> worried about the replication for crisis and fraud and P-hacking. Right. They're just... <laughs> right. So there's this quote where he says, in short, the only thing which we commonly see are those which we pre-perceive. And the only things that we pre-perceive are those which have been labeled for us and the labels stamped into our mind. So with that test, like the, you know, two different dichotomous yeah, listening, dichotomous listening yeah. it's like if you tell us to listen to the left ear, then yeah. we can do it. If you tell us to listen to the right ear, then we can do that. But w yeah, w how do you interpret this idea of pre-perceiving and labeling? It's only our ability to have that in our mind first that allows us to get it. Um, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, so I'm curious, like I wish you would flesh this out a little bit more because it, it seems to me that he thinks that there are some instinctual categories that we have, like that, that we will attend naturally to like whatever loud sounds in the night, you know, yeah. loud bumps in the night or some, or, or predators or whatever. And that since, since we come with those categories or whatever, we attend to those things. But the rest, what I thought in my mind is my own experience of if I'm on a hike, I see trees. Yeah. I just see trees. If you asked me like, what did you see? I would say trees. I saw trees. Like, I don't see pines and oaks and whatever, you know, I don't, I just, 
it never makes it into my mind that there are all of these differences in all these trees because I just don't have the proper categories to distinguish between them. And so one of the things that he says is that what attention is, it's allowing you to distinguish between things, but you need those categories to distinguish. Right. So you need an education. You would have a very different experience than someone who uh, was a botanist and uh, or an arboreist or whatever the fuck. Um, and then it would be a completely different experience and you would be making these distinctions. And if you take a hike with somebody who's a geologist or who's, you know, they're seeing all sorts of things that to you is just a nice vista or like a (laughs) cool rock or whatever, you don't have the labels. And it's not, again, it's not a kind of Kantian, we all have the same categories. It really just depends on... Like, like our previous experience and how we're trained and what kinds of things that we attend to and what kinds of things we don't. Uh, I just glanced through this Jesse Prince article or chapter oh, on William James and attention. And he says this anticipates the predictive coding theory or it's uh, the predictive coding theory where our previous experience, we're always seeing what we predict. We're never Mm -hmm. seeing like raw reality. We're always constructing a prediction of reality and then correcting errors to what we see based on further stimuli, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Is that that true? Like, is this what's going on? Is this what's going on here? Like uh, pre-perceiving, does that mean we are constructing it already? Like before? Because while he's not an empiricist, I didn't think he was going so far as to say we never, we never take in any of the raw data of experience. It's just that we sort it out in all sorts of different ways. The predictive coding theory, as I understand it, is, no, it's a constant construction of reality that is informed by reality, but is never primarily, um, that's not the thing that is the content of our experience. Is this consistent with both, or is is this a kind of proto-predictive coding theory? What do you think? So that's a good question. And I that quote that you put in there about the only things which we commonly see are those which we pre-perceive, it sounded like a stronger a, a stronger claim than I thought he would make because how does it even get off the ground? Like how how can you begin to form categories without being able to attend to certain things? And he doesn't talk about it here, or at least I don't think he explicitly talks about the difference between perception and and attention because on some views people like there are some people who believe that you can't perceive anything if you don't have the proper category so that so you know the whole like linguistic relativism stuff like the the eskimos and snow stuff people's favorite example and that there is this serious top-down influence that what you expect is what you actually see. And uh, the reason that I like the talking about this in the context of attention is that it allows room for you to be able to perceive anything, but your attention might just be way easier to deploy once you have a category to put that in. But maybe all he means is, suppose that I'm walking through the forest with like, yeah, arboreus or whatever it is, and they point out, Hey, look at the difference between these two leaves. Maybe that person has just given me a category and that's all he means. Like that somebody even pointing out the difference 
is providing me with a category. Yeah, and maybe like that's just one time isn't enough. It's because he says the lead into this line, it, it is for this reason that men have no eyes, but for those aspects of things which have they have already been taught to discern. In kindergarten instruction, one of the exercises is to make the children see how many features they can point out in such an object as a flower or a stuffed bird. They can readily name the features they already know, but they may look for hours without distinguishing nostrils, claws, scales, etc., until their attention is called to these details. Thereafter, however, they see them every time. So that's very consistent yeah. with what you're saying. Like, oh... I didn't really get that. Okay. So now from yeah. now on, I will know, like I have a way of processing the different stems or, you know, the right. different kinds of shades on a particular leaf or whatever it is. Cause somebody told me that. And as long as I don't forget that, then I'll see it. Right. I just have to believe that we could see it on our, like it has to get off the ground sometime, right? Somebody has to have created the categories for the first time. So that's why it struck yeah, right. me as a pretty strong claim. <laughs> um, but in general, though, like that meshes with just, you know, like over 12 years of this podcast, uh, our discussions of, of things, especially works of art, yeah. have shaped the way that I actually attend to different things, like in film, especially. Yeah. I just, there are things that ex expertise, I don't mean that I'm an expert, but you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. that acquiring certain concepts makes you notice like I, when I started noticing lighting, because I heard people talk about lighting, yeah. I was like, oh, all of a sudden I noticed the lighting in all of these movies. I never would have thought about it. And it's not that I didn't see it. You see the lighting, yeah. right? Like it would be, you wouldn't be able to process anything if you didn't see it, but you don't notice it and it doesn't distinguish. It doesn't pop out from the rest of the stuff and it certainly doesn't make it in your memory. Well, that's, that's a distinction that maybe it's worth talking about because a lot of directors will say, of course... You know, you don't need to watch YouTube video essays to appreciate my movies. Yeah. And, and some of these techniques, they are hitting you at a subconscious level in a way yeah. that it goes directly to your emotions and you won't be able to explain what it, or articulate what it is that you're feeling necessarily. But, but it's there yeah. and it's, it's, it's working on you at that kind of subconscious level. And I think like for the only way for that to be true is if what you're saying is right, that we are processing it, even if we don't have the words to describe it or even the concepts to fully understand it in our own heads beyond just having our emotions manipulated or changed in some way as a result of the technique. And so the difference in what you notice is just more of like a your ability to consciously talk about this stuff. You know, we got an... Uh, but it's not just that. Like, it's also in the way we understand it. It's not just how we talk about it. I, like, I guess the point is, it's like... No, yeah, yeah. You... I, I think if you have the... Like, if you're like, oh, they're using this technique to evoke pathos that's a stupid example but you know what i mean it will affect how you yeah. like understand the thing not just how you talk about it how you it'll affect how you experience oh it. yeah but yeah yeah how you understand yeah. it too totally we we got an interesting question or ask us anything this month this past month about whether there are works of art that that evoke some kind of emotion even yeah, though you don't yeah. know why and we had a discussion about music being that way. And I like I fully believe that there is music that evokes emotion in me that I don't know why, but that I might be able to learn right. why if I <laughs> if I learned a bit more about about the structure of music. Yeah. And yeah, I you know, there is there's a 
discussion to be had because we've touched on it so much, but just of the role of expertise in aesthetic appreciation and what it does. Sometimes you almost want to go back to a point where you can see things with new eyes and you want to go back to beginner's mind. Like you don't want to know like three act structure in a movie and just being like, Oh, that's the (laughs) second act. I think you've said that. I I know my daughter said that when I first learned that, like I had like my innocence died, you know, a little bit, you know, I know, you know, what's really dumb is it took me forever to realize exposition, (laughs) how bad exposition is in movies. And it was, it wasn't until somebody told me, what exposition was in movies or what bad exposition was that I was because now I you're and now you're judging now if it's can't. good you're like oh that's a very <laughs> yeah. clever uh, use of exposition that's a great way of getting yeah. that information across <laughs> you're not focused on the information as much as like the technique and then if it's totally. clumsy exposition like you're just frustrated by it whereas before yeah. you just be like you know uh oh that's that's information that i'm going to need to understand the rest of the movie yeah Yeah. so i have a theory that that expertise makes you enjoy good things more but it actually makes you uh enjoy most things less (laughs) that's that's interesting (laughs) so like you know before before i uh started get buying good coffee and trying to pay attention between like different kinds of, of coffee beans like gas station coffee didn't bother me nearly as much as it does now, you know? Like, I feel like I could just enjoy, in, in maybe in James' mind as a brute, enjoy it. Yeah, that's certainly true with, like, taste. You know, once you're exposed yeah. to things tasting good and rich and interesting in a certain way, then the boring stuff will taste worse. I, I think the one counterexample to that is... With expertise, like with movies, there are certain movies that I would have looked down on because I was just focused on plot and dialogue. And then when you, you know, like a lot lot of Brian De Palma's movies are like, they're kind of cheesy and uh, the plot just goes away like at some point. And it's like he has great ones. He has very (laughs) tightly constructed stories, but then sometimes not. But then like if you appreciate the visual filmmaking and the sound and all of that, just the aesthetics of making a movie, you can get past some of that stuff and just appreciate what he's doing with the camera and with sound and editing. So like it's a, it's a trade off, but I know what you mean that for the most part, the more you're exposed to being able to understand great things in whatever category, it's going to just make it harder to appreciate the stuff that you used to think was totally fine, you know? Uh, Yeah. Should we conclude by just talking about this kind of interesting stuff about the will and attention? Because he offers this at the end, and this is clearly something that, like you said, this connects to so much of other of James's thought. And James is somewhat famously a libertarian about free will. Um, He thinks we have free will. He thinks compatibilism can't get off the ground. It's uh, he has one of the famous quotes about it. I forget which one Uh, quagmire of evasion or something like that. And uh, so he says, look, there's two explanations for voluntary attention, effortful attention, right? The kind of attention that you have to like, you're focusing on the guy next to you at the party while everyone else is having a good time. And this guy is talking about, you know, why people won't publish him anymore or something like that. And, <laughs> um, and so the one is that 
it's just another effect. Like the effort, although it feels like something that you have to continuously do, that's still just an effect of previous experience and, uh, you know, your makeup. And so uh, although you can distinguish uh, effortless attention from effortful attention, like there's nothing that is involving it being something that originates I guess from you rather than just originates from previous causes. So that's one explanation. He gives a, like a long sustained argument for why that's compatible with the facts as we know it. But then he also says, you know, the causal explanation, meaning that you're actually doing it, that there's some you that's not necessarily caused, that's allowing you to continue this sustained attention, that's also compatible with the facts. And science can't decide between them. It's just going to be metaphysics and ethics. And though he favors the causal theory, he says it's for ethical and metaphysical reasons and not for scientific uh, reasons. And that the only kind of quasi-science reason to choose the effect theory is Occam's razor. But he says that's a good rule of method, but it's not a law of nature. Yeah, I do love this discussion. Like James, he almost fooled me when he's defending the effect view, the view that we're, we're more like automatons than, than causes. And he says, the stream of our thought is like a river. On the whole, easy, simple, flowing predominates in it. The drift of things is with the pull of gravity, and effortless attention is the rule. But at intervals, an obstruction, a setback, a logjam occurs, stops the current, creates an eddy, and makes things temporarily move the other way. If a real river could feel, it would feel these eddies and setbacks as places of effort. I'm here flowing, it would say, in the direction of greatest resistance instead of flowing as usual in the direction of least. My effort is what enables me to perform this feat, which is exactly the kind of argument that people make to try to deflate the voluntary feeling right. of freedom. It's almost like Libet kind of like, uh, you know, like it's yeah, kind of this idea totally. of even just the feeling of effort and effort itself being epiphenomenal. Yeah. He never uses the word epiphenomenal, but he says he calls it it might just be an accompaniment, more or less yeah. superfluous. Yeah. But did, you were nodding. Did you also think like, oh, I, I thought, yeah, this? he, he yeah. builds such a strong yeah. <laughs> case. It's almost like he wants to let yourself believe this, because uh, then when he talks about the causal theory, it's just like all that, except that you're actually doing it and it originates in you. I, I you know. It's it's a little frustrating because he doesn't go into exactly what it means to say that it's free beyond that it's undetermined, which he even concedes at one point. I don't have yeah. the quote in front of me. doesn't necessarily mean that it's free if it's undetermined. So, like, I don't even know what that yeah. is supposed to entail, but I think he thinks, right, because it can't be fully articulated and certainly not scientifically defended but it is the thing that gives life meaning you know yeah so he says when we come to the chapter on the will we shall see that the whole drama of the voluntary life hinges on the amount of attention slightly more or slightly less which rival motor ideas may receive but the whole feeling of reality the whole sting and excitement of our voluntary life depends on our sense that in it things are really being decided from one moment to the other and that it is not the dull rattling off of a chain that was forged innumerable ages ago this appearance, which makes life and history tingle with such a tragic zest, 
may not be an illusion. As we grant to the advocate of the mechanical theory that it may be one, so he must grant to us that it may be not. And he just, like you said, he just says, like, I, I am one who believes that it's not mechanical and I do it for ethical, metaphysical yeah. reasons. But you're right that it, it's, you know, he has the words really being decided in italics. And that's about as clear, <laughs> uh, it's a clear description of what he means um, by freedom. Which is not that clear because they are really being no. decided no matter what view you cling to, like. Either I'm focusing on this conversation or I'm focusing on the lamp or what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Like, And, and maybe I'm thinking, okay, I got to finish off this episode and then I can worry about dinner. Like that's really being decided. And um, it's just yeah. a question of what exactly. This is always the question with libertarians. We're not going to get into that when it comes yeah. to, to free will. But I do find it interesting that the whole sting and excitement and the zest, you know, the tragic zest, it all depends <laughs> on this thing that he himself struggles to articulate. This makes me want to go back to my, you know, objective attitude, free will, skepticism, roots. Uh, like, no, all that stuff is still there regardless, you know? <laughs> right. And it is kind of interesting because on the one hand, there is this push and pull of attention. And here he's clearly, like you said, like, I don't, I don't know if it's Aristotelian or virtue ethics kind of oriented in terms of what he's saying, but he clearly sees such value in this volitional yeah. attention, like connecting it to genius, connecting it to just not living in the gray chaos and blooming bu buzzing confusion. But there is this whole other tradition, as you said earlier, which is precisely not categorizing, conceptualizing, dividing everything up, chunking it all yeah. into bits, but experiencing the totality of reality pre-concepts, like prior yeah. to uh, all this yeah. dividing up and focusing here rather than there. And a lot of practices, and again, this is clear in Buddhism, but I think this is at the bottom of almost every mystical tradition, is that you are trying to tap into a reality prior to all this chopping up of reality that we naturally do. And I just find it fascinating that James is both like a, a proponent of that, maybe later in life, and maybe it was like this born again kind of thing, but I don't think so. Like, I kind of feel like it's all hangs together in some way. Maybe not. I don't know. Like, do you think that this was something that where he just completely shifted course later in his life and thought? Or do you think that, or, or maybe these things are always fighting within him, these two ways of... Yeah. I, yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, if we were a professional podcast, we would have read yeah. these in order. And maybe we could see some evolution of his thinking. I do think there is a, a coming to Jesus moment later on in his life where he's accepted this. And it's it's interesting because he builds one of the things when I when I first read the principles of psychology in this philosophy class where we went through all the whole two volumes. It's the only thing that could probably sustain my attention enough to go through all all of the chapters. It was so clear that he was perfectly comfortable with a like 99% mechanistic understanding yeah. of psychology and that he just had this little bit in there that he just insisted on that this was without this, like it just wouldn't be the same. And I feel like, at least in my recollection of that chapter on mysticism, that he 
might have just let himself go and and not think that it's such a bad thing, which leads me to the question I was going to ask you, and I don't know if uh, how much you know about the scholarship on this, but for a Buddhist who is perfectly fine understanding like the stream of thought as just being like there's no there's no need to have this like self that is imposing its voluntariness on it. They don't have trouble dealing with determinism or anything, right? They don't. No, that this doesn't pose a problem to them. Not at all. Does yeah. it? Yeah. I don't think it's a settled question whether there's, you know, determinism, this the metaphysical thesis of determinism is true. I think it's all wrapped up in terms of time being also something that doesn't have a reality. So to talk about determinism mm. is already vexed. But uh, yeah. yeah, as far like, you know, I'm also no expert, but I haven't come across people who have that same kind of hand-wringing about, you know, us not having a self or us not having volition, meaning that life uh, is drained of its tragic zest. And like, I I think that is, it's a Western preoccupation probably that arises out of Catholicism in a specific type, like Augustinian uh, form of Christianity, but it's not that people weren't worried about like, uh, and, and even Buddhists and Eastern traditions weren't worried about like, oh, what do I get credit for and what do I not get credit for and what is me and what is just something outside of me that is talked about, I think, all and 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 worried about. But the idea that there has to be this almost intellectualized version of a will that gives our life purpose yeah. and meaning. I do, I do think that is something more Western and probably very specifically, not even Judeo-Christian, but more just Christian. Just Christian. Yeah. No, I, I think I agree. I think that the, the metaphysical will is is not a natural kind yeah. <laughs> when it comes to people's, people's thinking. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm curious whether or not he ever wrote something saying later on in life, or maybe somewhere in the varieties. Yeah. Book that we I, I do think he to. had problems with some of the stuff he wrote in uh, the principles of psychology and he disavowed certain yeah. things, but I'm not sure it was stuff related to this. You're right, though. This yeah. could be Sapolsky at certain, like 99% of it could be Sapolsky, <laughs> yeah. but probably like, a, uh, I don't know, a different version of them. I'm not going to say it more. I, I actually like yeah. Sapolsky's stuff on baboons <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. He's yeah. a great He's writer. He's also yeah. a great writer. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. All right. Uh, should we yeah. wrap up? Yeah, I think we've ta- taxed the attention <laughs> of our sure. listeners enough. There's this thing. No, I'll, I'll, the last, the only thing I want to say is this uh, was it's just I thought it was going to be yeah. good, but it was a lot better than I thought. That's true, yeah. William James. Right. I'm about to teach a grad seminar, and uh, I'm happy with the topic I chose. But I kind of thought, should I have just done one on William James? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, they won't see my OnlyFans account, and I'll still be around <laughs> in two years to teach it. Okay, everybody sees your OnlyFans. <laughs> That's what we're. That's that's our announcement for this year. It's a very bad wizards only fans account. <laughs> Send us your suggestions for what you'd like to see. Your slash fiction suggestions. <laughs> All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.